You are listening to Season 3, Episode 111. Believe it or not, wow. This is the Warrior's Way Podcast, and I am, as always, James Zeke. It's nice that you are here. All right, Warrior's Way Podcast listeners, I have a question for you. Would you like to feel better about yourself? Find yourself in better shape, get some pointers on, get in some zen in your life? Or do you want to have access to some awesome martial arts classes and techniques and assorted other awesomeness that pulls from over 10 different martial arts into something that I call martial arts fusion? Well, guess what? Now you can. The Warrior's Way online training program is available right now for you to train with me from wherever you are around the world. And that's like magic, if you ask me. I have been training the martial arts, um, fitness, and zen for most of my 52 years now. What the Warrior's Way online training program is, is an intelligent way to improve your life for the best starting right now, which is some pretty cool stuff if you think about it. So it's a subscription-based online training virtual dojo. And it allows me to show you all the cool tips and tricks and ideas that I use to train in the martial arts and all the rest that I've been doing for the past 40 years. It's stuff that I do to stay fit and active, um, to increase my longevity, and some pretty decent instruction on how to get a meditation practice going. There are online classes that you get every week. And there are a ton of instructional videos depending on the membership tier. Um, So you can train one-on-one with me, getting a tailor-made program, and we'll check in with each other online and even do some online training together. Or you can get the most affordable option that works out to like 16 bucks a month, and it gives you the fusion martial arts class one a week, and it's packed with knowledge bombs, and you do it on your own. So, the best thing that you could do is drop me a message. Um, Excuse me. You drop me a message today on Facebook or on Instagram, and we can figure it out and come up with what works best for you. Um, I'd love to see you there, because I've put a lot of work and effort into it, and I think it's pretty cool. Uh, And if you love what we do here at Warrior's Way Podcast, it's a great way for you to ensure that we keep this thing going for another 100 plus episodes at least. So your best bet if you want to see this stuff online is go to warriorsway.ca. That's warriorsway.ca. And believe it or not, (laughs) I have set up a website for the podcast. Yay, drum roll. I don't have any sound effects. Um, So it's a a website for the podcast, but it also is a portal into the Warrior's Way online training program. So check it out. Before we get this thing rolling, though, one little public service announcement. Uh, As you know, it's hard to not know unless you have been on a deserted island and you just got rescued. We are in the middle of COVID. Hopefully we are near the end of it, but that depends on you, good people. 
get yourself jabbed with the vaccine. Don't be one of those weirdos that doesn't believe in vaccines or thinks that they're dangerous or whatever. You're not like that. Get the vaccine because you know what? You might not think that this COVID thing is going to kill you, but it is killing other people. The vaccine is going to keep you safe and will help to keep them safe. It's the best thing you can do right now. Let's be serious. We all want to get on with our lives. Don't listen to the nut jobs that tell you not to get the vaccine. Listen to the nut job telling you to get it. Um, get the vaccine. It makes sense, and it is one of those kind of things that this podcast is about. It's about thinking about others. So I'm going to get down off the soapbox. You're going to do the right thing. Let's get it done, and let's kick off this podcast. Death has always been the most uncomfortable fact of life. And as modern medicine, comforts, and conveniences have given us more years, we've seemingly become less and less comfortable with life's only guarantee. Roughly 7 out of 10 Westerners say they feel uncomfortable with death. Only half of people over 65 have considered how they want to die. After someone dies, we're encouraged to stay busy to take it off of our mind. The dead person's body is immediately covered and sent to a mortician where it's prepared to look youthful and alive as possible before one final hour-long viewing, after which it's dropped into the ground of a perfectly manicured cemetery. But research is showing that death awareness is actually good for us. For example, scientists at the University of Kentucky had one group of people Think about a painful visit to the dentist and others contemplate their death. The death thinkers afterwards said they were more happy and fulfilled in life. The scientists concluded that death is a psychologically threatening fact, but when people contemplate it, apparently the automatic system begins to search for happy thoughts. The country of Bhutan has made it part of its national curriculum to think about death, anywhere from one to three times daily. The understanding that we're all going to die is hammered into Bhutan's collective consciousness. And death is part of everyday life. Ashes of the dead are mixed with clay and molded into small pyramids and placed along heavily trafficked areas like roadsides, in windowsills, and public squares and parks. Bhutanese arts often center around death. Paintings of vultures picking the flesh from corpses, dances that reenact dying. Funerals are a 21-day event where the dead body lives in its house before being slowly cremated over fragrant juniper, juniper trees in front of hundreds of friends and relatives. All of this death is doing anything but bumming out the people of Bhutan. Despite being ranked the 134th most developed nation on earth, extensive studies conducted by Japanese researchers have found that it is among the world's 20th happiest countries. What you probably don't know is how morbidity contributes to their feelings of happiness, and neither did I. 
after four flights across 48 hours, 14 time zones, 9,465 miles, I stepped off an aging 737 onto a runway 7,333 feet above sea level at Bhutan's Paro International Airport. The thin air filled my lungs as the sun illuminated the surrounding snow-capped Himalayan foothills. I was there to find out how Bhutan's uncomfortable intimacy with death might improve my life and maybe yours too. I'd arranged to meet with a host of characters, including government leaders who study happiness in Bhutan. But the most compelling man I met were both leaders in the Buddhist faith. The first was Kempo Funcho Tashi. He shows as much or he knows as much about death as a living human can. He's one of Bhutan's leading Buddhist thinkers, and he's found a niche in the study of death and dying. The Kempo is the author of a 250-page book called The Fine Art of Living and Manifesting a Peaceful Life. And unlike many of Bhutan's monks, the Kempo is intimately familiar with what ails people in the West. Before he dedicated himself to his spiritual practice, he lived in Atlanta with a girlfriend who was the Dalai Lama's translator. He, I thought, would be able to get to the heart and consequence of the West's fear of death. My boots kicked up a low-hanging clod of dust as the Kenpo cliffside shack came into view. It was wooden, tin-roofed, and in the shadow of Dakarpo. Dakarpo is the ancient Buddhist monastery built on the outcropping that overlooks the Shaba Valley. The scent of burning incense crawled into my nose as I peeled back the heavy orange embroidered silk drape leading into the Kempo's room. Light was entering the room through a hazy window, catching smoke. It obscured a small altar anchored by a three-foot statue of the Buddha. Around it were smaller Buddhist statues, photographs, and burning incense of Champa. Through the smoke, I saw the profile of a face. It was the Kempo. Welcome, said the Kempo, his voice a heavily ac accented butter. I bowed and sat. You want to talk about death? I nodded. Hmm, he said. His chest slowly rose and fell in the silence. You Americans are usually ignorant, he said, using a word often seen as an insult in the United States, but that by definition means lacking awareness. In Bhutan and other Buddhist countries, ignorance is the rough English translation of, of avidya. That's a Sanskrit word that means having a misunderstanding of the true nature of your reality and the truth of your impermanence. Most Americans are unaware of how good you have it, and so many of you are miserable and chasing the wrong things. You act like life is fulfilling a checklist. I need to get a good wife or a good husband, then get a good car, and then get a good house, and then get a promotion, then get a better car and a better house, and make a name for myself. And then, and he rattled off more accomplishments that fulfill the American dream. But this plan will never materialize perfectly. And even if it does, then what? You don't settle. You add more items to the checklist. It's the nature of desire to get one thing and immediately want the next thing. And this cycle of accomplishment and acquisition won't necessarily make you happy. 
If you have 10 pairs of shoes, you're going to want 11 pairs. The Kempo then pointed out that by pursuing this checklist, we're often forced into acts that take us away from that higher reality and happiness. He was echoing a sentiment shared among many leaders in the tradition of of the <laughs> <is a> word <laughs> Vajraya Buddhism. Songral Rinpoche, in his 1992 work, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, called this checklist phenomena Western laziness. It consists of cramming our lives with compulsive activity so that there is no time at all to confront the real issues. If we look into our lives, we will see clearly how many unimportant tasks, so-called responsibilities, accumulate to fill them up. Going on as we do, obsessively trying to improve our conditions, can become an end in itself and a pointless distraction. The average American works 47 hours a week, and our entrepreneurs and productivity gurus preach that a grind and shut up and work harder mentality is the secret to satisfaction. This upset in our work-life balance, or perhaps our problem integrating our work into our life and not the other way around, factors into why research has shown that America is, in fact, less happy than it was decades ago. So this checklist plan does not make you truly happy, so then what? said the Kempo. And he was silent. He left it open for me to ponder. I don't know, I'm an ignorant American, I said and smiled. Then you could be happier, he responded with a chuckle. Whereas if you understand this cycle and nature of mind and you prioritize mindfulness, then everything will be okay. Even if you don't become rich, fine, you're mindful. Even if you don't get a perfect wife, fine, you're mindful. The Kempo made mindfulness sound akin to jamming a stick into the spokes of the checklist and developing a state of okayness. In other words, whether I'm rich or poor, or famous or a nobody, I should avoid becoming caught up in the narratives my mind spits out and just accept the direction of things. This will help me go beyond the checklist and I will be just fine. Well, the Bhutanese also have ignorance. They also have anger and attachment. We have the same problems on the checklist, but I think less. This is because we apply what we call mindfulness of the body. We remember that everyone is dying right now, said the Kenpo. Everyone will die. You are not singled out. Do you know this? To not think of death and not prepare for it, this is the root of ignorance. Pretend you're walking along a trail, he explained. And there's a cliff in 500 yards. The catch, the cliff is death and we will all walk off it. Buddha died. Jesus died. You will die. I will die. I would like to die on that bed, said Kempo, pointing to a tw twin mattress on the floor. Don't you want to know that there's a cliff? He asked. Because only then can we change our course. We could take a more scenic route. Notice the beauty of the trail before it ends. Say the things we truly want to say to the people we're walking it with. When you start to understand that death is coming, that the cliff is coming, you see things differently. 
you change your mental course. You naturally become more compassionate and mindful, said the Kenpo. But Americans, they don't want to hear about the cliff. They don't think about death. After a funeral, they want to get their mind off the death and just eat cake. The Bhutanese, they want to know about the cliff and they want to be happy to talk about death and ruin the cake eating. So remember, he continued, he was able to sustain the perfect upright lotus position while I was slumping and couldn't feel my legs. We are all dying right now. To develop this mindfulness of death, you have to think of mitakpa. Mitakpa, I asked. Yes, he said, mitakpa. Before I could probe the Kempo on mitakpa, and what it is and what it might be, and what it might be able to do, the time was up. And I was back in Dorji's hatchback, and we were bouncing balls in the seats as gravity aggressively pulled the car over all the rocks and ruts that once thwarted us. As we descended, I asked Dorji, what is mitakpa? He looked at me and shook his head. Mi tak pa. Oh, mi tak pa, he replied, pronouncing the word that sounded, made me sound like an ignorant American. Tak pa, permanent, he said. Mi, no. Mi tak pa, no permanent. I began to ask him to explain further, but a traffic jam interrupted me. It was a herd of seven bulls and a cow, and they had ambled up on the one-lane road. Dorji pressed into the brake to slow the car to a crawl, and the half-ton animals lazily parted around us, and their bells clanged as they slid down the length of the hatchback. The next day, I headed into an apartment in the city of Thimpu to meet Lama Damcho Gyatsen. He doesn't ponder death in an abstract sense. He experiences it every day. He's the head lama of the Jigme Dorji Wangchuk National Referral Hospital, the main hospital in Bhutan. It's there that he counsels the dying. After the Kempo elucidated the problem and hinted at some solution, the lama, I figured, might be able to expand. The Lama was sitting on a platform that was covered in a silk meditation pad, and he hopped off when I entered. He and I shook hands and did a lot of smiling and nodding. He was bald, short, doughy. He had wireframe glasses, and his bright white smile popped against his blaze orange robes. We sat back atop the platform in the Lotus while Jigme and I sat on the floor. Jigme explained what I was there to talk about, death, dying, and the Bhutanese death complex. Well, first I'd like to thank you for coming and reminding me of death because it is important for the mind, said the Lama. His words naturally set me up to ask why. When people come to the hospital, there's a chance they leave, he said, but there's also a high chance they don't leave. My job is to help people prepare for death. I have found that the people who have not thought about death are the ones who have regrets on their deathbeds because they have not used a necessary tool they could have to make them live a fuller life. 
an American study conducted across various hospitals like Yale Cancer Center, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and the Massachusetts General Hospital supports this notion. It found that dying patients who had open conversations about their death experience had better quality of life in the weeks and months leading to their passing, as judged by family members and nurse practitioners. The mind is afflicted with many delusions, but they come down to three, concluded the Lama. Those are greed, anger, and ignorance. When your mind is not taking care of these three things, they, those three things have an advantage. The dying people I counsel, they suddenly do not care about getting famous or their car or watch or working more. They don't care about the things that once angered them. In other words, when a person realizes that death is imminent, their checklist and everyday BS becomes irrelevant. And their mind begins to center on what makes it happy. Research from Australia found that the top regrets of the dying include not living in the moment, working too often, and living a life the person thinks they should rather than the one they truly want to. Whereas those who have thought about their death and prepared for it, they do not have those regrets because they have often not fallen so much into those delusions. They've lived in the moment, the Lama said. Maybe they've accomplished a lot, but maybe they haven't. But regardless, it has not affected their happiness as much. He expanded on this phenomena, explaining that a sort of cosmic psychic shift occurs in the dying. It brings them closer to the things that matter in the end. A living person who thinks of dying will, yes, immediately face mental discomfort, but they will emerge on the other side having stolen a bit of this end-of-life magic. What is mitakpa? I asked. Someone told me it translate into no permanent. Well, close, said the Lama. Mitakpa is impermanence. He raised an arm and a finger, like a professor making a point. Impermanence, impermanence, impermanence. This, he said, is the cornerstone of Buddhist teachings. Nothing lasts, and therefore, nothing can be held on to. By trying to hold on to that which is changing, like our life itself, we ultimately end up suffering. Buddha's final words were on impermanence, a reminder that all things die. All things change. Whatever is born is subject to decay. All all individual things pass away. It's important to preserve this precious understanding of Mitakpa in your mind. It will significantly contribute to your happiness, said the Lama. He echoed the Kempo's sentiment. He explained that not thinking of impermanence often leads a person to believe that things will be better when I do X or with a false sense of permanence that causes a person to put off the things they truly want to do because, oh, I can do that when I retire. When you understand that nothing is permanent, you cannot help but follow a better and happier path, he said. It calms your mind. You tend not to get overly excited, angry, or critical. 
With this principle, people interact with others and it improves their relationships. They become more grateful and more gracious. Because they realize all their material goods and status will not matter at all in the end. And not just in Bhutan. A study of psychological science discovered that people who thought about their death were more likely to show concern for people around them. They did things like donating time and money and even their blood to blood banks. How often should I be thinking about impermanence, I asked. You must think about impermanence three times a day. Once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and once in the evening. You must be curious about your death. You must understand you don't know how you will die or where you will die, just that you will die. And that death can come at any time. The ancient monks would remind themselves of this every time they left their meditation cave. And I too remind myself of this every time I walk out my front door. Remember, said the Lama, as we were saying goodbye, death can come at any time. At any time. The next day, I spent the morning hiking five steep miles to Paro Taksang, or the Tiger's Nest, a sacred 15th century Buddhist monastery f- built in the traditional Bhutanese Dzong style. The monastery sits at 10,240 feet above sea level. It clings to a cliff like a reptile on a vertical wall. It's the location where the 8th century man considered the second Buddha meditated in a cave filled with tigers for three years, three months, three weeks, three days, and three hours. As I exited the monastery and put my shoes back on, Dorji, my driver, by the way, in Bhutan, law requires all tourists to hire a guide and a driver, and my guide had conked out due to the altitude. (laughs) Dorji hurriedly approached me. Someone's sick, he said in his broken English. He pointed up the trail to a set of steep stairs cut from the cliff that led up to a small meditation hut next to a waterfall. Towards the top of the steps, a group of people huddled. They were all wearing either traditional monk's robes or something close. Dorji jogged towards the group and I followed. As I quickly stepped up the thin stairs, I could see feet hanging from the edge of the steps. A monk, bald head, thin glasses, maroon robes, was down on the steps unconscious. I recalled some basic emergency wilderness training I took and checked his spine for signs of fracture. Nothing. A general understanding arose within the group. The man needed to be moved to flat ground so he could be airlifted out. The stairs were too steep and too thin for a group to carry, so we carefully propped the monk onto the back of the largest driver who hoofed him down the steps. With the help of the group, we laid the monk onto a flat grass patch along the cliffside trail. The monk's eyes were rolled back, as if he was scrutinizing the brain above them. 
I'm going to do CPR, I told the group slowly. They only partially understood me as I knelt in front of him. Two tiny women, a mother and a daughter who were both doctors in Hong Kong, were suddenly at my side. They were hiking to the monastery when they walked into the scene. They pressed their fingers into the man's neck to check vitals and agreed that CPR was needed. And these two were surely better trained, but I was the only person with any training who was also large enough to execute CPR on a 200-pound monk. I tore open his robe, revealing a gold t-shirt. I dug my knees into the dirt, overlapped my hands, placed the heel of my right hand on the monk's sternum. Then I began hammering into his chest, 100 beats a minute, as the doctor daughter began a timer. I was unsure of the cultural implications of giving a monk mouth-to-mouth. So the younger Hong Kong doctor quickly instructed one of the other monks, a woman, how to do it. She breathed into him, repeatedly pushing air into his lungs, and then I was back to compressing his chest. The daughter doctor checked the monk's vitals, and she shook her head. I continued with the CPR, pressing, pressing, pressing as hard as I could, thinking that if I could push hard enough, I might kickstart his heart. We hit the 15-minute mark. His face was distant. 20 minutes, 11 seconds, said the doctor. You can stop. He was gone. Here was a man who had just minutes ago had hiked five steep miles. He was laughing. He was joking. He was talking with his friends along the way. Death can come at any time. So that was an excerpt from the book, The Comfort Crisis. Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self by Michael Easter. What a great piece of writing. So what do you think? I would bet some of you listening were left feeling uncomfortable about all this talk of death. That's the Western response to it. I'll let you in on on a little bit of information. It's a little bit of personal information maybe, but what the heck. In the midst of all this COVID that is swirling around us, I spent about a week in all that I can describe as an existential experience. It wasn't an existential crisis, but more similar to some sudden cracking through a barrier of the mind and ego. I think that what brought it about was partially that with the COVID pandemic, the ever-looming specter of death has been floating around us like those Dementors in Harry Potter. The other is that in my own meditation practice, things have been changing in a way that is probably the most productive change in decades of daily sitting. It started in the morning with a seed of thought that grew. 
If I remember correctly, I was standing looking out the glass door at the wind blowing the cherry blossoms that covered the trees in the backyard while I was playing my violin. And suddenly I had this overwhelming, dawning realization that all of this, everything, would someday be gone. Me included. Even my 100-year-plus violin. It wasn't thoughts of this, but more of a light switch going on and a sudden new light was shining on things and seeing everything differently. And I realized down to my bones that all these people who are now gone that had lived in this home. Before that, it was a settler's farm. And before that, it was a forest. And into the future that other people I don't know will someday stand where I was. That everything outside of that door from the hummingbirds to the trees and myself were all going to go. And like I said, it lasted for about a week. And and believe me, having something like this in your life for a week feels more like months. And when I say it lasted a week, I mean it literally lasted a week. Every single moment of those days. Everything I saw, this light was shining on it. And yep, that person too, that dog, that bird, that flower... (laughs) That be all of it, impermanent. And at first, I have to tell you, it was a little overwhelming. But I've had some pretty good teachers in my life, if you've been following me. And I took the advice of one of my Zen masters that had given me 25 years ago, at least, maybe longer, to let go of every experience and not cling to it. See it, feel it, acknowledge it, and let it go. This one, though, I have to tell you, it was a biggie, as I'm sure you can imagine. It wasn't just, you know, thinking about death. It was there. And I googled existential crisis and everything else I could see that I wanted to see what anyone had to say about this. And yeah, it all came back to Buddhist teachers, to be honest, mostly with similar messages as the folks in the story of the trip to Bhutan. Now, I don't think you need to go off the deep end on some sort of existential, transcendental Zen death trip. Believe me. Honestly, without some serious time spent training, like I have... I don't know if something like what I went through would be beneficial to most people. You might end up going to the doctor to be put on something. For me, though, the other end of this was a much truer understanding of impermanence and of life. Now, the reality is that I seem to feel like the green leaves are more green The sun on my skin when I sit on the front step to have my daily afternoon tea feels more alive. When I take a deep breath, I feel the good, healthy breath filling me with vitality and life feels somehow like more. Now, does that mean that I have somehow transcended or anything? Yeah, no. (laughs) believe me, I'm still the same bumbling fool that I've always been. 
What I think, though, is that I caught a glimpse of something that is the truest lesson that we can learn in this life. Too many of us run through our lives just blind. We accumulate, we grasp, we delude ourselves. What my week of whatever you want to call it was, it, it taught me that all things will change. All things always have changed. All things are impermanent. All things are not quite what they seem to be and that they are not what we see them as and wish them to be. And even more important, we are all in it together. What this means, though, is that right here, right now, man, that is a gift that most of us don't even begin to fathom. Think for a second of the infinite universe. Think of the small, infinitesimal odds that you somehow were lucky enough to be born on this tiny little planet. That even now, that was somehow made possible. That everything and everyone around us is equally, infinitely improbable. Yet we're here. What does that mean? To me, it means that we need to celebrate this very moment by paying back gratitude, by cultivating compassion and loving kindness, that our time here isn't about accumulating things that we really can never really possess, but that our time here can be used to do good for the greater good. In the end, I think that is what this podcast is about. It's about training, about turning on the lights and really seeing. Understanding life and death and then life again. This is the greatest of lessons. So, you're listening to this. You are alive right now. That's what you have. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And if you have more of now, what will you do with all of that now that you have left? Figure it out. It is probably the most important thing you can do. So there you go. All right. Question of the week. Mary asks, I've had a hard time through COVID. I trained for a few years before the pandemic. and I don't know how we will just go back to how things were. What do you think? Well, Mary, that's a good question. And something I think that many of us are going through. Where I live, my academy has been shut down due to COVID restrictions for eight months. Having been shut down before that, in the first lockdown. So it's probably about a year that the thing's been closed physically. Yeah, I had a few months teaching where people had to stay six feet apart, which as a martial arts instructor brought on all new challenges. And I've been following all the directions we've been given to the letter. So honestly, since COVID started, I've really not had a ton of interactions with people like I did before. 
I think that we have to go back to living our social, outside-the-home kind of lives slowly and with some patience and understanding. Let's face it, we have all been affected by COVID in one way or another. But just as this podcast was about, everything in life is impermanent. Even our thoughts and concerns. Some people may never want to be up close with someone they don't know. So maybe forever or maybe just for a while. Or maybe they'll just ease back into it. For me, I think that once I get my second vaccine and get the green light to reopen without limitations, I will get the lights back on and ease back into things. I won't jump back into things as they were before, though. What this will be like for you and your school will probably vary. I'm an islander as well as a Zen dude, so I like things chilled out, I'm going to admit. What I'd recommend to you is that when you are able to get on the dojo mats again, make sure you have your shot and ease yourself back. I'm not sure what martial art you train in. If you do jujitsu, I'd suggest you go with someone you trust and feel comfortable to train with and be gentle with yourself. If it's other martial arts that you aren't right on top of the other person, maybe think about keeping your mask on if that makes you feel better. The thing is, I don't think you need to worry too much. I'm sure your instructor and all the other students are going to be keeping things equally light and understanding, or at least I hope so. Hopefully, this is the end of COVID and our lives can come back to something resembling something familiar. I don't know, though. I think that we may not completely be done with this, but with the vaccine, I think we will be able to get ourselves pretty close. So, I think that's it. Get back to your school when it reopens and you've had your shot, make sure you get your shot. Follow directions, but follow your own heart. Even if someone else has been told they don't need a mask, and if you feel you should, then wear one. If you think you just want to train your stand-up for a bit or do weapons work instead of rolling around on the ground with someone, then do that. The thing is, remember that martial arts schools are one of the things that has taken a huge blow during this. People bailed, schools closed, some shut down forever. If you are lucky enough to have an instructor who is stuck to it, probably suffering financially like you can't imagine over this past year, show them what it means to you. I can guarantee that if they suffered through a year of students vanishing, being forced to shut down, paying the bills and the rent out of their own pockets and teaching online classes, even though they themselves were doing everything they could to keep the brick and mortar school there for when COVID eventually passed, they probably weren't doing all of that because what matters to them the most is money. What they are showing is that they care about the things they teach and probably, most importantly, they care about the students who stuck it out for them and the students that stuck it out for each other. In that case, 
make sure you are there for all of them when the dust settles. I think that's the best answer to your question. In the end, we have to be there for others. And I think we will wrap it up there. So thanks again for tuning in. Holy smokes, 111 episodes. That is something. Uh, like I mentioned at the start, we now have a website. So please go over to warriorsway.ca and check it out. It has a place where you can listen to this podcast. It has uh, basically blog entries that are uh, my bit of some of your favorite podcasts. So you can read those. And it also has the entrance into the Warriors Way online training program. So that is awesome. And I'd love to see some of you training with me. It, uh, it would be a great way to, to get to know some of you. Uh, and to be honest with you, not that I'm a prideful person, but the Warriors Way online training program, I've worked really hard on. And there are so many videos. And uh, it's kind of, you know, the culmination of 40 years of work, to be honest with you. And so I'm pretty proud of it. I think it is a pretty good thing right now, and it can only get better. The other thing, we have a Worries Way podcast Instagram page, so check that out. You can find it on Facebook. And if you like the stuff that I talk about, make sure you pick up one of my books. You can find them on Amazon. You can get them as actual paper books or you can get it as an ebook. And if you like the podcast, tell others about it and give it a five-star review because you're awesome like that. And I think that's where we'll end it. Thanks a lot for listening. Train hard, people. Have fun and be a good friend. Thanks a lot.